Well, good morning. My name's Nate, one of the pastors here. It's great to have Nate back, but now there's two Nates again, so we got to work that out, um, but we'll make our way through. Uh, I just want to highlight one more thing. Uh, if you're newer to our church, we're putting together uh, a special gathering the last Wednesday of August, the first Wednesday of September, called Trailhead, Belonging and Believing at Hillcrest, a chance to learn why we get together as a church, what we're about, what we believe, why we do what we do. Uh, if you were, missed some of the vision desserts back at the last spring, if you missed one of those, you wanna, this is a great chance to make that up and join us. Uh, we'd love to bring you in to what we're about as a church community. So that's coming up the end of this month. You're going to hear more about that. And also, I don't know about you, but um, I've got a sophomore, uh, junior in high school. Some of you have kids started up school this last week. I think this morning, I just want to take a moment and uh, bless and honor those who are serving in our schools, teachers, administrators, principals, staff uh, that are investing in our community, in our kids. So uh, I just want to ask if anyone here is uh, working in a school, going, going to be going to school or college, university, if you're on staff or administrator, teacher, would you just stand for a moment? I just want to pray for you as we start this new year off. So if you would just stand, and uh, we want to lift you up this morning. So let's pray. Let's pray together and bless these who are standing. Father, thank you for these who uh, are part of the communities for our, our students, for our kids, as they start this new school year off, Lord. We know that uh, summer goes quickly, and uh, some who are heading back to teach might not feel ready. Uh, others are just excited to get back in the classroom. Lord, wherever they're at, we'd ask that you would bless them and encourage them and strengthen them for the work you've called them to. Thank you for those who administer and serve and volunteer and teach and are involved in our schools, Lord. Uh, we, we think especially of Briarwood Elementary that we have a partnership with. We pray for those who are serving there and working there. Lord, bless them, encourage them. And might this be a, a good, a safe, uh, a effective school year uh, because of your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just say thanks to those who stood up there and trust that God's going to use them. When I, th when I think of school, you guys have probably seen or, or um, maybe even read that book, Everything I Needed to Know for Life I Learned in Kindergarten. Have you seen that poster? Uh, we've, I've seen those hanging around sometimes. It talks about how like everything you really need to have a, a, a solid life you learned when you were four or five years old. And it lists off some of the things you learned in kindergarten, things like don't hit other people, right? That's okay, good advice, that's good. Uh, clean up your messes. Don't take what is not yours. There's a key one on there, it says flush. <laughs> yeah. Every time. Uh, say you're sorry when you hurt someone. Uh, take a nap every afternoon. Can you imagine if like under your desk at work or wherever you might have, you had one of those little fold-up foam mats that we had in kindergarten, you know, and like at, after lunch, you come back from work and you just flap that thing out in your office and it's curled up for half an hour nap. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Take a nap every afternoon. The idea of, of those principles is like if you do the right thing in the right way, treat people the right way, that your life will go better. You're going to make friends. You're going to do well in school and work. You're going to become a productive member of society. And, and generally speaking, that's right on, right? It's, it, those are accurate and helpful things to keep in mind. Most of the things we learn on that poster in that book fall into like, if you do this, then this will happen. If you do this, then this will happen, kind of that category. So if we go back to that list from uh, for kindergarten, if you say you're sorry when you hurt someone, hopefully they'll forgive you and, and you can remain friends. If you clean up your mess, others will appreciate it and notice, and, and that'll be a good thing. If you hit someone, you're going to get labeled as a mean person, and you don't want that label, so don't hit other people. And the problem is that um, as we get older, as we start to experience life, 
we learn that the world doesn't always work out that way, right? If I say I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not always forgiven. Sometimes that friendship is, is over. If I take something that is not mine, there's times when I don't get found out, I get away with it. We start to realize that when we clean up our messes, sometimes nobody notices and nobody cares that our kitchen is clean, right? We start to realize that life doesn't always work out according to those basic kindergarten principles. Some of us learned that a long time ago. Some of us maybe came across that more recently. And I bet there are some of you still in this room that might argue with me. And you would say, no, Nate, when you do A and you plus B, it always gonna, it's always going to equal C. If I, if, I do, if I work hard and apply myself, I'm always going to have the money that I need. If I provide for my family and love my spouse well, our family is going to be great. Our kids will turn out just fine, whatever that means, you know, <laughs> according to your just fine. We even pull out passages of scripture. We say, Proverbs 22, train up a child on the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And we throw on to that guaranteed every time, right? That's the way it's going to work out. Proverbs 3, 33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. And we say, every time, that's, that's going to be a promise. And the, the problem is the Proverbs, the wisdom writing of the Old Testament, it, it's a proverb, it's not a promise. It's a principle of life, it's not a promise. But sometimes we get those things confused and we hold on to them like they're promises. And then we come to a book like Job in the Old Testament the wisdom book of Job, and it pushes back on that approach to life that A plus B will always equal C. The Old Testament gives us Job and it says, I want you, God says in Job, I want you to think bigger. I want you to believe in a greater God. I want you to understand that life is not as simple as A plus B will equal C. And to be honest, I'm glad that it doesn't work that way. Because if my life is only the sum of what I can do, the choices I make, my behaviors, my hard work, if that's all that I can expect in life, well then I'm not going to have the life that God really created me for. If it's up to my actions and my power, it's going to be a lesser life. Our God, our Heavenly Father, is able to create in us a kind of life, a new life, that is so much greater than anything we could create for ourselves. So I want to get into the book of Job a little bit this morning. And stretch our understanding of this, you get what you deserve, life mantra that so many of us might believe. And so if you've got your Bible with you, would you open up to Job chapter 1? And let's challenge ourselves a little bit this morning. Job chapter 1, you can open up the Bible app on your phone that Nate was getting us into. We're going to start at verses 1 through 5. Job is the story of Job, obviously, maybe not obviously, but it tells the story of Job. He didn't write it himself, uh, but it was written about him. Uh, most people believe that he probably lived during the time of Abraham. So that's three to 4,000 years ago. So a little bit, a little bit ago. Uh, Job lived to be over 100 years old. His wealth was measured in the amount of uh, animals that he owned. And he acted as a priest for his family. So all of those facts put him in the patriarchal period. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those, those people. His story was probably passed down through communal storytelling for hundreds of years before it actually got pinned onto a scroll and for us to have today. So let's look at Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. So Abraham was from Ur, Job was from Uz, so I guess back then you named a town with a U and a different letter after the U, so... Uh, but that's, that's where he was from. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. 
He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. I have three cars. Job's got nothing. You know, he's, he's got, I've got nothing compared to Job. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Verse 4, his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So you, you, you get the idea right at the beginning. Job is a good man, does the right thing in the right ways. He has 10 kids, many flocks. He's well thought of in his community. All of the external markers that says he's doing the right thing in the right way. And then Satan stands before God. And he makes a claim. He says he only does the right thing because he's got so many good things in his life. That's the only reason he worships you. That's the only reason he trusts you. So drop down to verse 10. Satan says, have you, have you not put a hedge around him, like a, a hedge of protection, his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. In verse 11, but now, God, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So God doesn't do what Satan says he should do, but he does say, you can go ahead and have at him. Go ahead. Do what you want to to Job. Don't touch him physically, but you can do whatever you want to to his world. And so the next day, Job's uh, waking up in the morning and, and a messenger comes to his tent door and says, some people attacked your flocks of oxen and donkeys and killed several of those watching them and, and all of them are gone. They're, they've been taken. And right as that messenger finishes saying that the second messenger shows up and says, lightning struck your, your sheep, the flock, and like electrocuted all of them. They're all dead. And all your shepherds died with them. And then a third one comes to the door and says, hey, a, a group of people attacked your camel herd, took all of your camels and killed those who were watching them. And then there's a fourth knock at the door and Job's like, don't come in. I don't want to hear from you. And the fourth messenger comes in. All 10 of your kids were having dinner and a wind came into the house and blew the house down and the roof of rock fell on them and crushed them. They're all dead. Everything gone. All that told Job's neighbors that he was a good guy was lost. And the scriptures tell us that Job did not curse God. He continued to worship God. He turned to God and said, why is this happening? But I trust you. I believe you are still good and right. And so Satan comes back in chapter two. Chapter two, Satan comes back to Job it comes back, sorry, comes back to God. In verse four, Satan says, skin for skin, a man will give all that he has for his own life. In other words, like, you wouldn't let me touch him physically. And that's why he's still trusting you. In verse five, he says that, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. Again, God doesn't cause it to happen, but he allows it to happen. He says, okay, go ahead. You can Bring physical challenge on him. You can do whatever you want physically, but don't end his life. And so Job's skin breaks out with this rash, this, this uh, um, painful thing, blisters all over his body. And the scriptures tells us that he's sitting in ashes and he's grieving the loss of his flocks and his family and he's got broken pottery and he's scratching at his skin. And his wife comes to him and says, just curse God and die. Just a wonderful wife, wonderful woman, right? <laughs> Just curse God and die. And, and really, that's how many of us as humans handle suffering. When things are not going the way we would like them to go, 
so many times we just curse God. Think about death a lot. The rest of the book of Job takes on this topic that we, we, we continue to hear about today, is written about today. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why would God allow Job to suffer since he was such a good man? Another way to say it is God is able to do anything he wants and he loves every per- person on earth, so why do we experience pain and suffering? Logically, either God is not all-powerful, so there's hardships that he can't control that come on us, or he is not all-loving. So if you're not one of God's favorite kids, buckle up because it's going to be a bumpy ride. There's an academic word that discusses, that kind of categorizes this discussion and this debate about why does God allow hardship, and, and the word is theodicy. Theodicy. So theo is the Greek word for God, and dice is the Greek word for judgment. So we make judgments about God, justifying God. Why, why would he allow this to happen? We try to justify God like we could do that, right? It's a, probably a good pursuit, ridiculous in some ways, but at least we can be honest and say it doesn't make sense to us why bad things happen to people who seem to be good, to innocent people. The book of Job takes on that debate, that explanation, and wrestles with it alongside us. And we know we still struggle with this today. We hear about innocent lives in the Ukraine that have been lost. We hear about flooding in Kentucky that's going to take years and years to recover from. The genocide of the Rohingya community in Myanmar that has caused thousands of people to, to run from their homes and become refugees in Bangladesh. We, we see this suffering in the world around us. And we say, God, why do you allow this to happen? And we have it in our own lives, Right? Many of us have lost friends and family to the COVID pandemic, and they'd still be alive today if they hadn't gotten sick and died. Some of us have lost so much financially, and we're still waiting for God to provide the right job so we can get back on our feet. I think about many of us who have experienced the pain and the anger of a friend that turns their back on us, a close friend that we trusted that that became less trustworthy or just took off for some reason and that, that relationship has changed completely and we don't understand why. It doesn't make sense to us. We need a book like Job in the Old Testament to help us realize that this is a, a, a real reality, even for people in the Bible, stories that the Bible shares with us. Without Job, much of what we're told in the wisdom writings is just A plus B equals C. Retribution theology, it's called. When a good person does good things, they get good things in their life. If you're a bad person, you do bad things, so bad things will happen to you. People are treated differently by God depending on their behavior. It's a whole way of thinking about God, retribution theology. And we read in the Proverbs and Psalms and even Job the the evidence of this kind of theology, this kind of way of thinking about God. Proverbs 13, 25, The righteous eat to their hearts are content, but the stomach of the wicked goes hungry. So if somebody's hungry, they must be wicked. Right, we make that assumption. This is the theology we start to build. Psalm 25, those who put their hope in God will never be put to shame, but those who can't be trusted will be put to shame. They have no excuse. Every time we start to put that little guaranteed right, on that label. And in, in Job, we even see it playing out with his friends. Job is sitting in ashes in his pain, and he has three friends that come to him and, and start to advise him and talk to him. Eliphaz says, so, so here's what I've observed. People gather a crop from what they plant. If they plant evil and trouble, that's what they're going to harvest. Basically saying, Job, you're going through hardship because of you. It's your fault. Something you did. You did something wrong. You sinned. You hurt somebody. This is God's judgment on you because you did something wrong. And we hear this even today. A hurricane hits somewhere. A disease breaks out among a people group. And we hear religious people say, it's because 
they deserve it because of the evil in their lives. This is God doing it to them. We hear it over and over again. Another friend named Bildad the Shuhite, which I just have to say, uh, if you have a friend having a baby, Bildad. I just want to encourage that name. I think we need to get that back going in circulation. Bildad the Shuhite sounds like someone from The Hobbit. Um, so he's another friend. He says, Job, if you are pure and upright, then surely, surely then God will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. This is retribution theology. God's going to have to do something good, Job, if you turn things around. If you start doing something good, God has to do something good for you. Now, I just want to be clear real quick. It's wise to honor God with your life. It's wise to place your hope in God and trust him. Wisdom says, plant good things and good things will be harvested. Live with integrity and you will have what you need. It's wise to live that way. But life doesn't always play out that way. These are principles, not promises. We have to keep that straight. The good person sometimes suffers. The person with integrity sometimes loses it all. You and I know there are people we might know them personally, that take advantage of systems and they get away with it. They have more, not less, at the end. It's, it's not just, it's not fair, it's not right. From our limited perspective, our limited understanding, we don't understand why our good and powerful God would allow these unjust things to happen. And Job is a book of wisdom because everyone in the book claims to know why. They claim to have wisdom about why these things happen. And they share that freely with each other. Job's friends come to him, not really to comfort him. He talks about them trying to comfort him. They don't really come to comfort him. They come to tell him what he needs to start to do to make things right. How to put his life back together again. Because when you do the right things in the right way, right stuff will happen to you. And hundreds of years later, Jesus and his followers were in the Jewish community and they still believe the same thing. They still thought the same way. So Jesus would say things like, well, you know, there's 18 who died when that Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Do you think that accident happened to them because they deserved it, because they had done something wrong and this was God making things right in that moment? Jesus says, I tell you, no, no, that's not true. But unless you repent, you too will perish. God says, we're all going to face this judgment. It's not based on what we do right or wrong. We're all going to face that judgment. There's another time when Jesus' closest friends observed a, a man who was born blind, and they said, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And you see what they're saying there, that he could somehow sin in the womb, that he would be born blind. Even before he was born, did he sin? Who did this to him? And, and Jesus said, that's, that's not how this is going to play out. That's not what the story is here. His blindness is not a result of anyone's behavior. It's something that he's facing so that God can show up and give him a new kind of life. This, this hardship will display the goodness of God. And we're still talking about it today, how God brings healing and hope to people's lives. How we think about suffering and hardship, it, it really does matter. It, it matters how we treat, it changes how we treat ourselves, it changes how we treat others. How we think about suffering and hardship really affects our lives. So let's just start by focusing on how it affects us personally. If we believe that our behavior translates into some kind of guarantee that we will either have good things or we will suffer, when suffering comes, as it eventually will on all of us, hardship will eventually come. If we believe that like, it's not just or somehow it's not supposed to happen that way, our connection to God will suffer. Our belief in God will somehow lessen or change because it, 
doesn't add up to our theology, doesn't make sense to our understanding of how it's supposed to operate. Our wonderful life-giving connection to our creator will be up for grabs because what we thought was a promise is suddenly not being fulfilled. I was supposed to have a problem-free life, and, and now I don't. So what's going on, God? This is why some of us have walked away from our faith. God didn't hold up his end of the agreement. I lost my job. My mom passed away. I had an accident, and now I won't be able to live without pain. This is not what I signed up for. This is not, what I, this is not why I decided to believe in God. The A plus B equals C theology is going to disappoint us, and, and we won't be prepared when hardship comes because it is going to come. It also can make it hard for us to ask for help and receive support when we go into times of suffering. It can be hard to ask for help. It can be hard to come up and ask someone to pray for you after a service. It can be hard to sit with a friend and talk to them about what you're going through and ask them for advice and, and counsel because bad things happen to bad people. And, and if, I, if something bad's happened to me, it's because I'm a bad person and I'm not, I don't want to admit that. I don't want to put that car, those cards out on the table. I'm not going to go up there and ask for prayer or talk to my friend because they're going to assume I'm somehow screwed up in some way, and I don't want to admit that. What the book of Job reminds us is that there are things that God allows in our lives that we will not fully understand. There are hardships that we face that God doesn't cause, but he also doesn't stop. And there are many reasons why God might allow hardship in our lives. It does help us grow spiritually. It helps us grow as people when we go through hard things. I've talked to many people about how did you start to see God moving in your life in new ways? How did your faith really start to expand? And so many talk about it's when I went through this hard thing in my life. It's when I got this diagnosis or I lost this job or someone passed away and God showed up and, and comforted me and brought me through that time. When we go through suffering, it allows us to be empathetic to others who are suffering. It helps deepen our, our, our well, our reservoir of, of compassion for others. It connects us to others. When we go through hardship, we need other people to help us, and so we get connected to neighbors and community and others who can walk with us through those difficult times. Jesus said, don't be surprised when you suffer. All these things are good, but the problem is when you're suffering, you don't want to know why you're suffering. You just want to stop suffering, right? You want God to change it, to stop it, you want a different reality, maybe not a deeper one. When life is hard, I don't want to understand more. I just want to hurt less, right? When my life is difficult, I don't want to understand more. I just want to hurt less. And Job's friends try to, to comfort him, and he gets ticked off. Eventually in Job 16, he says this, I've heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you, he says. <laughs> So you're not, you're not helping me out at all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? I mean, we need to hear that sometimes. How, how, how are you going to treat others in your life when they're going through hardship and suffering? You don't need to explain their life to them, right? Just be with them. Listen to them. Pray. Do what you can to support them and love them because their Heavenly Father loves them, and that's what we're called to do. How you view hardship and suffering is going to affect how you treat others. It's also going to treat how, affect how you see justice in this world. If we live by this mantra that you get what you deserve, it's pretty easy to turn to blind, a blind eye to people who are suffering and simply write it off as, well, they had it coming. So when you pull up to the corner and you see that houseless person looking for help, looking for assistance, saying, hey, you got any cash? You got any water? It's really easy for us to say, well, look at them. I mean, they, they, deserve, they did something. You know, they're just going to use it for drugs. You know, they're just... 
they got themselves into this, they can get themselves out. It's pretty easy to write them off. When you see a, a car off on the side of the highway and you see people there like they ran out of gas and they're fighting about it, like, well, I should have thought about getting gas, right? I mean, get what you deserve. But God doesn't treat us that way. With God, we get what we don't deserve. And that's a good thing. With God, there's times when we don't get what we deserve, and that's a good thing as well. God's mercy and grace are gifts to us. We don't earn them. So why do we demand that others earn our mercy and grace when God didn't demand that from us? All those who follow Jesus, uh, those of us who follow Jesus, we are, we are for other people. We are for them. We, our, our battle, our enemy is not flesh and blood but the spiritual forces that we cannot see. Everyone we encounter deserves a second chance, a third chance, and on and on. There's a quote from uh, gotquestions.org that speaks to this. I just want to read this quote from that website. One day, God will judge the world in righteousness and perfect justice. Retribution is coming. Retribution is coming. Until that day, we are careful not to assume God's blessing or judgment on individuals based on their external circumstances. We trust the judge of all the earth to always do what is right. The book of Job doesn't answer the question of why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, but it does come to a conclusion. Job's friends finish their speeches, and Job defends himself before God, and then God shows up and calls them all out. And God reminds Job that there are things he will do that we just we can't understand from our human perspective. We can't get our minds around it. Job 38 through 41 is this amazing description of the created world that God called into existence. And then God says to Job, and right in the middle of that, in Job 40, would you dare to claim that I'm not being fair? Would you judge me in order to make yourself seem right? Is your arm more powerful than mine? Can your voice thunder as mine does? Just kind of calls Job out. And a little bit later, Job answers. He replies to God. He says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. God, you asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? God, you said, surely I spoke these things. And Job didn't says, surely I spoke these things and I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. God, you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. And, jo- and then Job says, my ears have heard And my eyes have also now seen. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I I repent of trying to justify myself in front of you and to call you out, God. He says, I realize you are God, I am not. The conclusion for Job is this. We can trust God even when life doesn't make sense. When those who choose evil seem to go through life without punishment, we trust God. We offer mercy. We choose to love When those who are innocent suffer, we trust God. We offer mercy. We choose to love. It's good to know that God does give us promises. He does make promises to us that we can hold on to, that we can embrace in the midst of our hardship and our suffering. And you you guys know the promises that God gives us. Would anybody want to share with me one of the promises that God gives us? What are the promises you know that God has spoken? His mercies are new every morning. He will never leave us or forsake us. His salvation, his mercy is new every morning. He is a gift. He gives us new life. What other promises come to mind? Healing. Healing. We will be healed in every way we can be healed by the Spirit of God. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Jesus said, my peace I give you. 
Jesus took on all the evil of this world, took it to the cross, and paid for it. An innocent who suffered in our place and gave his life for us. He gave himself. That, that is God's mercy and grace for us. And now, as those who choose to follow him, who have surrendered our lives to Jesus, we live in the same way. We offer mercy and grace that others don't have to justify why they deserve it. We just offer it to them, mercy and grace and love. Let's ask God to help us live this way. We need his help to do it. So will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you are true and good and faithful in every way. Lord, in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of our suffering, we cry out to you like David did. We ask for you to, to move so that we might be freed from the suffering. We're truthful about it. No one wants to suffer. We don't want to stay in these places of pain. So we ask you to change the story for us. And, and while we wait, we wait patiently. We hold on to you, Father. We believe that you are good and faithful. And that any pain, any suffering that we face in this life will not be worth comparing to the glory that you are calling us toward. The new life that you have for us that does not end when we die, but only expands and becomes greater. Thank you for the promise of this new life. And might we be your sons and daughters who share that new life with others, who do not hold people under some thumb of you did wrong, you deserve wrong, but might we be people of grace and mercy, scandalous love, Lord. Might we love that way? Because that's how Jesus loves us. We prayed in his powerful name. Amen.